a whole bunch of scripture readings this evening, different ones, shorter, shorter passages, but a number of different texts. Um, so feel free to turn there in your Bibles and follow along if you'd like, or there's also the, uh, the PowerPoint slide up here. Our first text is Isaiah 44, our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 44, 1 through 8. Isaiah 44, 1 through 8. Loved ones, this is God's word, so let's pay careful attention to it. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these things to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And then another text in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 48, verse 11. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. And our New Testament readings, starting with Matthew 28, reading 16 through 20 here. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name 
than they. And finally, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask once again your blessing on your word. We know that our hearts do not have uh, do not have life in themselves. We know that our minds do not have the capability in ourselves to take your word and believe it. Only you can do that, Lord. We pray that you would take your word, plant it deep in our hearts, give us hearts that love you, wills that desire to obey for you, minds that understand what it is you're teaching us in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing on in this, sheet of this series in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, looking at just the basics of our faith, the basics of what we believe as Christians. Uh, some of these, uh, some of these uh, truths that we've looked at so far are, are truths where you can go and, and pick one text of Scripture and really expound a truth from that one text. Others are, are, are bigger and broader and perhaps don't have a particular text that you can go to, you have to bring together a bunch of texts. And so that's, that's what we're doing tonight as we look at the doctrine of the Trinity. We're bringing together uh, all these texts we just read to try to understand what exactly the church believes, what exactly we believe about the Trinity. Think about that, loved ones, as, as, we, as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, right? That there's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, same in substance, equal in power and glory. As we think about that doctrine, what, what comes to your mind? How do you, how do you react to it? For some of us, perhaps, we think about the doctrine of the Trinity and it sounds, uh, it sounds pretty, pretty high and abstract. And we can be tempted to uh, kind of treat it like a cold mathematical formula of some kind, like a, like, a, like a kind of a scientific puzzle. You can't quite wrap your mind around. Or perhaps you think about the doctrine of the Trinity with some slight embarrassment. You know, if you're talking to your non-Christian neighbor and you're talking about the things of God and the scriptures and the gospel, um, maybe this is one of those doctrines. This is harder to, to tell somebody and have them kind of understand and, and grasp. And, and why on earth would you believe that God is three and one at the same time? You know, it's a, it's a puzzle, isn't it? Maybe that's how you might react to this idea of the Trinity. Well, as we're going to see as we, as we unpack these texts together, uh, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is a high doctrine. It's filled with mystery. It's incomprehensible to us. But at the, it, but, but, but at the same time, loved ones, it is, uh, it is the doctrine of who God is. This is His name. This is, this is who He is. And so it's, it's for us to believe and to trust Him. It's not that we should uh, consider this doctrine and analyze it but that we should adore him for it. I remember hearing a sermon once by John Piper, uh, a recording of a sermon by Piper as he was a young man in seminary and discussed, he, he was working through some doctrine. I think it was the doctrine of election. And he remembers uh, having a sense that God was saying to him as he's this young guy in seminary, that, that God was saying to him, I will not be analyzed. I will be adored. And the doctrine of the Trinity is such a doctrine, isn't it? That God doesn't want us to just kind of analyze and, and take apart the pieces and you know, try to see how this thing works. He wants us to see who He is in His glory 
and all the incomprehensible glory that He is and fall down and worship. And also I would, I would say that um, the doctrine of the Trinity is uh, not something we should be embarrassed about or shy to talk with others about. And indeed, it's not something that we should kind of treat as a, as a, as a distant thing that doesn't really bear much relevance for me. There's a wonderful apologetic in the doctrine of the Trinity, as we'll see a little bit later on. And there's a wonderful comfort in it that the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is committed to me and committed to my salvation, that He's done absolutely everything necessary to save me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that He's doing it all to bring me into fellowship with Himself, to taste that sweet fellowship that, that the persons of the Godhead have enjoyed for all eternity. It's a glorious comfort here. So, so what we're going to do tonight in the, in the sermon is we're going to kind of take two parts. We're going to first try to unpack and understand just what this doctrine is. We're going to look at how God is one, how God is three, and try to unpack it. We're going to try to state it clearly and simply and using the, the text of Scripture. And then we're going to try to look just briefly about, about its relevance for us, what it means for us, how it's a help and a comfort to us. As we do that, uh, let's, let's turn to our first text, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 8, and we'll look at Isaiah 48, 11 as well. So, in Isaiah 44, we're especially looking at verses 6 through 8 there. I read 1 through 8 just for a bit of the context, but we're going to look in particular at verses 6 through 8. What's going on there in Isaiah 44? Well, Isaiah, and the Lord speaking through Isaiah, is confronting the people of Israel for their idolatry. They keep running after other gods, committing spiritual adultery with, with other gods. They keep on trusting other gods to give them safety and security. They keep on looking away from the Lord and His power and trusting that other gods and idols have power. And God is telling them that He is the only one there is. He's the only God, the only Creator there is. And He, he has this refrain. It shows up from Isaiah 40 all the way through Isaiah 48, uh, where He tells them, There is no other. I am God. No one else is. No competitors. There are no other creators. Let's just look at verse 6 here in Isaiah 44. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. God says so clearly here, doesn't He? I'm first, I'm last, there's no other. I'm the Creator, there's no other. I'm the only Redeemer, there's no other. And He goes on in verse 7. In verse 7, He's sort of mocking the other false gods of His people. He says, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. See what God's doing there? He's mocking the idols. He's saying, okay, idols, uh, if you think you're gods, then come and, and, and proclaim the future as I have done. Right? The Lord, through Isaiah, tells what the future holds. And it comes to pass every time. But the false gods are powerless to do this. In verse 8, again, he says, Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from this 
that time and declared it. You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So God is saying, I'm the only refuge, the only place of safety, the only place of shelter. So what we're seeing here in Isaiah 44 is part of the, the, the drumbeat and the, the, the chorus of Old Testament religion. We saw it previously uh, a few weeks ago. We looked at Deuteronomy 6.4 where God says, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's this theme that's so dominant in the Old Testament and in the New. There is one God. There's only one. And He doesn't share His glory. He doesn't ever share His glory. The glory that's due to Him, He doesn't let anyone else have. And that's what... Uh, uh, we see in Isaiah 48.11, right? He says, I will not give my glory to another. I can pull it up here for you. Isaiah 48.11, For my own sake, for my own sake I will do it. How should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. It's the witness of this text in the whole Old Testament. God is one, and He doesn't share His glory. It would seem then that, you know, the case is closed, right? God is one. But then we turn to the New Testament, right? And we look at a text like uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let me read, let me read this again, uh, focusing in especially on verse 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So, the Old Testament says there's one God, He doesn't share His glory. It's crystal clear. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. That He's full of the glory of God. That He is the glory of God. The radiance, the effulgence of the glory of God. And then we continue to look in this text. It says that He's the Creator, just like uh, God is. He's the one who sustains everything by the word of His power, just like God does. And so we see the New Testament is, is beginning to make this picture a little more complicated, this picture of one God. What's it mean then that now we have Jesus being called God, being uh, attributed things that only God could have? We could look at a text like John 17.5 where Jesus says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Jesus is God. As the Nicene Creed says, He's very God of very God. He is the Creator and Sustainer and the One to be glorified. So there's no doubt then that He's God, that's clear from Scripture. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 2.9, In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the New Testament is clear, right? Jesus is also God. And then we look at a text like Matthew 28. 
And, and here we see that uh, God isn't uh, one, actually, in person, but he's three in person. While remaining one in his uh, being, he's three in person. As Jesus tells his disciples to go out, he's commissioning them to go out and be his witnesses throughout the world, he gives them the name of God. And he gives it as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in verse 19. Um, he's giving the church the sacrament of baptism here. This is really interesting. He's, he's giving them the sacrament of baptism, that, that sacrament which says you are part of God's family now, You're, you belong to his covenant now. But instead of giving the name we might expect, right, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, the Lord. That's his, that's his family name, if you will. But now Jesus, even as he gives the sign of the covenant in the New Testament, baptism, he says, and here is the, the name of God that goes with it. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons of the Godhead. This is God's name. And so the light of the New Testament as it shines over the whole of Scripture shows us that Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, is this same God. He has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the clear teaching of the whole Scripture. So the question then is, how is it that this God of the Old Testament, who declares to us that there is no other, that He is one, and this God who says He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how can this be? How can it be? That's the question the ancient church wrestled with uh, for a long time, trying to hammer out how it can be that he is both one and three. They look at the biblical data in those early councils and look at these same texts we do, and they say, you know, we can't say God is one and God and at the same time that he's three gods. Right? Because that would be just an outright contradiction and against Scripture that he is three gods would mean he can't be one God. The Scripture says he's one God. So that's not possible. That's not what he says in the Word of God. But we also can't say that he's one God who kind of takes on three different personalities or puts on three different uniforms and three different roles. That, so there's God, and sometimes he plays the part of the Father. And then in the New Testament, he comes down and plays the part of the Son. And then after the ascension, he plays the part of the Holy Spirit, that God is in these different modes. That's how some people try to explain this. But you can't do it that way. Because look at a text like Jesus' baptism. And there in one moment, you have the Father declaring from heaven that is, this is his beloved Son with whom he's well pleased. You have the Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. And you have the Son there being baptized. So you see all persons of the Godhead together at one moment. So we can't say that, uh, that God is just this one being operating in three different modes. We can't say that the Father is fully God, but then the Son and the Spirit are just kind of demigods, partial gods, something in between. Some people try to solve the problem that way. But Scripture doesn't let us say that. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. It says that we are to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It attributes attributes of deity to the Spirit. We can't say they're not fully God. There is no middle category between God and the creation. So what do we say? Well, the ancient church came up with this, that God is one in essence and at the same time three in person, Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we think about this? That God is one in essence, three in persons. How, how do we understand that? It's a, it's a, it seems so vague and abstract. We've, people have often tried to find analogies in the creative world, right? Like a, a, a clover with three leaves. And that it's one clover, and that then you have this leaf, and this leaf, and this leaf, and that makes the whole clover. But that doesn't really work uh, for an analogy because uh, the three leaves are separate, and any one leaf that you broke off of that clover wouldn't be the whole clover, right? But God, as the triune God, each person of the Godhead is equally God and fully God. All that is in God is in each person of the Trinity. All that is in God is in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So they come up with this language. It falls short, but it's the best human language can do to express the infinite mystery of God's being. One of the great theologians of the ancient church who wrestled a lot with this was a guy named Gregory Nazianzus. And he has this quote where he says that whenever my mind is drawn to the three, I think of the one. Whenever my mind is drawn to the one, I think of the three. It's a paraphrase. He, he puts it like this. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot, uh, cannot distinguish or measure out the undivided light. Saying, when I think of the one, I think of the three. And, and that's probably the best expression I've heard of how to think about the Trinity. And really, so in the end, it comes down to be quite simple, doesn't it? One of the questions you often get asked in a licensure exam when you're getting tested before Presbytery to preach, uh, or an ordination exam, uh, is how would you explain the doctrine of the Trinity to a 10-year-old, or for, to anyone for that matter, right? And um, I, I think this is, a, this is one of the best ways. God is revealed in Scripture as one God and three persons. It's a mystery we cannot comprehend. When I think of the one, I think of the three. When I think of the three, I think of the one. Well, loved ones, what's the point? Of all this, it does sound uh, it does sound high and abstract in a way. It is the deepest mystery of all of Scripture. I think it's also the foundation and bedrock of our faith. Actually, asking the point, asking that question, what's the point of all this? is a dangerous question to ask, isn't it? We're talking about who God is in Himself. And it might be a bit preposterous for us to say, well, what's the point, wouldn't it? To, to, to look at who God is, look at who He's revealed Himself to be in His Word and say, okay, well, what's in it for me? It's a dangerous question to ask. We should be careful not to take a pragmatic approach to God and His Word. I don't want to do that. But I do want to encourage you to see the usefulness of this doctrine, to, to see that what we're talking about here isn't just an abstract idea. It's not just a set of teachings the church has believed that we also believe, but this is your God, your Savior, the one worthy of your trust, the one who can comfort and save you. So it is a good question to ask, 
how should this impact me? How should who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, impact my Monday morning and my work and my week? How should this challenge the way I live and strengthen my faith? What does it mean for me? Those are good questions to ask throughout Scripture and, and especially as we consider this doctrine of the Trinity tonight. So the first and foremost response I think we need to have, what does this mean for me? How do I respond to this as we consider who God is as three and one is, is that we worship Him. That's the most basic application every time, isn't it, when we're considering God? Worship, love, trust, wonder at who He is, the majesty of His mystery, just glory in the fact that you can't comprehend Him. You can't wrap your mind around Him, that He is entirely uh, exalted above your human understanding. And that even in glory, your mind will not be able to plumb the depths of this mystery of His triune being. But that's not all that we should say. We should also, as, as we look at who God is as three and one, uh, we should also see that this should fill our hearts with comfort, with sweet, solid confidence. It should, be, it should be fuel for our faith. We said, as we started, that the study of the Trinity is not an abstract doctrine. It's the study of God Himself. It's about knowing and trusting God as He is in Himself. We saw this in the text in Isaiah. As Isaiah, as the Lord speaks through Isaiah to His people, what's He doing? He's not just giving them a theology lesson about the oneness of God. He's telling them to trust God and not trust anyone else because God is one. And in the New Testament, as God reveals Himself as triune, it's no different. He's still saying, this is who I am, so trust me. Have confidence in me. The New Testament texts that we've looked at so far all bear this out. They're, they're all teaching this theology with an aim at helping the saints and encouraging them in their faith. And to look at this, to unpack this, I would like to look at that final text we read now in closing, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, where Paul so gloriously brings together the doctrine of the Trinity and the comfort of the church. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This text tells us wonderfully that the whole Godhead is committed to saving you and blessing you and seeing you through this pilgrimage on earth to your heavenly salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all 100% committed to blessing you. There's no fragment of God that is not committed to the good of His people, to blessing His people. Every person of the Godhead is involved in saving you, loved ones. As a Christian, you live out your life under the blessing of the triune God. Paul highlights three things here. First, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he says that, he brings into view everything that Jesus has done for your salvation. Everything he did as he humbled himself, taking on our flesh, becoming like us, 
walking a life of perfect obedience to his Father for our sakes, dying on the cross uh, to bear the punishment for our sins as he rises from the dead, as he is, is seated in heaven and praying for us, interceding for us before his Father. His grace, all of that is, is caught up in that word. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. This is the grace of Christ to us. That he saved sinners who deserved to be damned. This is who the eternal Son of God is for you, loved ones. The eternal Son of God is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is gracious towards you. Then Paul mentions the love of God, the love of the Father. This is what lies underneath and in back of all our salvation. Um, sometimes we can get this idea that the Father is sort of the mean one, and the Son is the one who is kind, and he kind of twists the Father's arm by his sacrifice to say, if, if, if I die for them, will you, will you let their sins go then? But we see all throughout Scripture that's a horrible caricature horrible lie, uh, that it's the love of God, it's the love of the Father especially which is highlighted, right? It shows up in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his Son. It's the love of God that stands in back of your salvation and my salvation. God has loved us with an everlasting love. And this love of God isn't just a love for us. It's also the love, I think, is referring to the love that is between the persons of the Godhead. The fellowship and communion, the friendship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and a, and a fellowship of perfect love. Theologian Robert Lethem writes this, Love is at the heart of who God is. And it's interesting. There's actually a, a, a helpful apologetic here uh, as well. You know, Think about the fact that... Um, uh, Allah in Islam is one and not three. They look at the Trinity as a horrible heresy in Islam. But that means there can be no love in God until the creation. You can't, uh, you have to have another to love. And Islam doesn't have that until the world is created. But in the Christian religion, we say that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved each other for eternity. And so God is love far before there's any creation at all for him to love. And he, he creates this world out of his love. And he, he saves sinners out of that same love. C.S. Lewis says, commenting on this in his book, Mere Christianity, the words God is love have no meaning unless God contains at least two persons. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. But our God's three persons love for all eternity then. And then it's out of that love that we are loved. It's out of that love that he sets his love on us. As we consider God's love for us, remember that it's not because of who we are that we are loved by him, but it's because of who he is that we are loved. And uh, the love of God is such a glorious thing. We could spend... Uh, uh, lifetimes considering it together. Uh, but remember that um, uh, this love that God has for you is an eternal love. 
He says, God says in, in the prophets, in Jeremiah, He says that He loves His people with an everlasting love. The theologian Gerhardus Voss, commenting on that, says that the best proof God will never stop loving you lies in the fact that He never began. So the love of God, Paul brings that into view here. A sweet comfort to us. And we live out our lives under that, don't we? Every day, we live out our lives under the fact that God has loved me with an everlasting love that will never run out. And then Paul says, the communion of the Holy Spirit. He closes with with that. The communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he addresses the Holy Spirit as equal with Father and Son here. We've seen this somewhat already. This Holy Spirit is the one who comes and lives inside of us. That's a staggering thing. The Spirit, the eternal God, the Spirit, indwells believers. He's inside you, giving you life, applying Christ to you. And what, is the, what does the text tell us that is the particular ministry of the Spirit is to bring us into fellowship with God? We didn't look at John 17. We, we could have. But over in John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he's praying that they would, uh, would come to know that and share in the fellowship between the persons of the Trinity. Not that we ever join the Trinity. We can't become God because we're not God. We're, we're always creatures. But we can join in their love and share in their fellowship together. And that's what the text is discussing here. The communion of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings us into friendship intimate relationship with the persons of the Godhead. So, loved ones, I want you to see from this text and from what we've seen this evening, the whole God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is committed to saving you. Every person of the Trinity is involved in your salvation. Yours, specifically you, elect saint. Not general things here. We're speaking specifically. The Father planned it out of His love. The Son accomplished it by His grace. The Spirit applies it that we might have fellowship with God forever. So trust Him. Trust your triune God. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank You for loving and saving us and bringing us into fellowship with You. We pray that we would draw strength and confidence from these things, that we would trust you, O God, wholeheartedly. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.